Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let us pray. Even now, Lord God, in the opening of your word, let every other throne and stronghold fall. Even now, Lord, in the opening of your word, let every false and phony and selfish glory be burned up. Even now, Lord, bless your people with a vision of your glory. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's open together to Isaiah 34, and I want to talk to you this morning about embarrassing pictures. Question, do I want you to see my high school yearbook? Answer, no. (laughs) Do I want you to see what clothes I wore? Like I on purpose went to the store and bought those clothes and put them on my body? Answer, no. Uh, I do a lot of funerals and memorial services, and we do our share of crying. But when we get out the old pictures, we do our share of mocking and laughing as well. Like, was he really that skinny? (laughs) And why did she do her hair that way? And you know, everything else. Can you believe what we look like in old pictures? The reason I bring up old pictures that we're embarrassed about is because I wanna talk to you today about the doctrine of hell. And I think we treat the doctrine of hell like an old picture that we're embarrassed about. And I think that's a grievous dishonor to God. We treat Bible passages where God judges his enemies like I would treat pictures of me in 1987. I don't really want to talk about that. I don't really want to see that. We get embarrassed about it and uncomfortable about it. We read from the Psalms earlier in this service. There's, there's what we would call Psalms of judgment or Psalms about hell. Maybe you've ever seen this word imprecatory. The Psalms give blessings, but an imprecation is a, a cursing, a judgment. And there are many imprecatory Psalms, and we treat them like we're embarrassed about them. And God's people rejoice in his judgment, and we sort of turn away from that. We treat God's judgment like a bug when really it's a feature that is given to us for our good and his glory. Why do we treat parts of the Bible like that? They aren't uh, a bug. They're a gift. They're not a problem to be solved. They're a truth to be accepted. And then sometimes we weep over that truth in sorrow for those we love that we don't want to see them. Uh, lose out on the blessings of salvation and instead receive the wrath of God. We weep over those truths with sympathy and compassion, but we're not silent about them. And it's not for us to apologize for them. Isaiah 34 is about the judgment of God on the world. Isaiah 35 is about the blessing of God on his people. Isaiah 34, hell. Isaiah 35, heaven. I 
originally had both of these together, but uh, last week I split them apart. And we'll talk about the judgment in hell this week and the blessing in heaven next week, though a little bit of intertwining will happen between the two. Look with me at Isaiah 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. The slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise and the mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves fall from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a great sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and the young steers with the mighty bulls. The land shall drink its fill of blood and the soil shall be gorged with fat. We can end there at verse 7. But would you notice with me the very first verse? He says, let everybody hear about this. Look at the words in verse 1. Nations, peoples, the earth, all that fills the earth, the world, all that comes from the world. I don't know how we could pile up more terms to say, hey, everybody, Pay attention to this. And yet this is the very doctrine that we sort of put away like an old yearbook that we don't want anybody to know about. Turn back, if you would, to the, the 90s, the Psalms. We were married in the early 90s. I, don't, I wouldn't mind if you saw pictures of my wedding because a tux is like still a tux, but... Not necessarily this stuff I wore before or after the wedding. But if you turn back to the 90s, Psalm 90s, look at, I just, I just want to show you like a, just like a drum roll here. Pick it up in, say, Psalm 94. You tell me if you don't find this concept that instead of being embarrassed and mousy about it, the authors of Scripture not only speak about it, but they speak about it and say on purpose, I want everybody in the world to hear about this. Look at uh, Psalm 94. O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Instead of shrinking back and turning the light off of this, it says put a spotlight on it and let that, let that glory shine. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words and the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and they murder the fatherless. And they say the Lord doesn't see, the God of Jacob doesn't perceive. And so the psalmist wants the God of Jacob to shine forth in vengeance. Look at Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And why are we singing? And why are we making a joyful noise? Verse 11, because of his wrath. Because of his wrath. Look at Psalm 96. 
Pick up Psalm 96 in uh, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. All that fills it. Let the field exult. Everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Look at verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Look at verse 3. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Even the mountains melt. Psalm 97, verse 12 tells us to rejoice in the Lord and give thanks to his holy name for these things. Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. Psalm 98, verse 4, make a joyful noise. Break out in joyful song. Why? Verse 7, let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Verse 9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so back to, to Isaiah 34. We, when I say we, I mean you and I, we have this lame habit of zigging when the Bible tells us to zag. And what God turns the volume up about, I don't know why, we get a better idea and we insist on turning the volume down. The Bible here is so contrary to our emotional tone where we apologize and hem and haw. But what does this tell us? It tells us that the Bible doesn't mean for us to whisper and hem and haw. I don't know, but I imagine that I imagine that it's not outside of the realm of possibility that as I deliver this 41-minute sermon about hell, uh, when I'm done, somebody could make an accusation against me that I have spiritually or emotionally abused you by speaking these things. Because this is the, this is the, the emotional resonance and tone of our world. But what does God say about these things? What does God say about these things. He says in Isaiah 34 verse 1 that he wants the whole earth and every single person in it to hear about this. And then notice the mountains and the mudslides in verses 2 and 3. The dead are cast out and there's corpses and it actually says at the end of verse 3 the mountains shall flow with their blood. We'll get to Isaiah 35 next week which is the, the mountain of worship and the ultimate destination for all of those who have received the blood sacrifice that God himself provided. There is salvation. Here, in Isaiah 34, we see the ultimate destiny of those who high-handedly refused the blood sacrifice that God offered. And it says nothing less than that they themselves become, as it were, a blood sacrifice. 
These images are meant to open the eyes of your heart, not to close them, but to open them. Isaiah has almost the largest vocabulary in all of the Old Testament. For instance, the book of Psalms, written by multiple authors, but there are like 2,100 different Hebrew words in the book of Psalms. There are more individual Hebrew words, 2,186, in the book of Isaiah. And his creativity of imagery is largely clustered around heaven and hell, judgment and salvation. And the image in Isaiah 34, verse 3, it actually seems to me to be saying that um, the mountains dissolve and the mudslide happens because of blood, because of blood. What do we do with that image? When we speak about hell and the wrath of God, we can speak these words faithfully and yet we can weep when we speak them because we're pleading with our neighbors, our loved ones, that we don't want to see them face this. And the reason we don't want to see them face this is because God is so good and glorious that he has provided a blood sacrifice of escape, of escape. And so we speak this, we don't whisper about it, we speak it reverently. We want everyone to hear this because we want everyone to be saved. Verse 4, the sky rolls back as a scroll. All the hosts of heaven rot away and the sky rolls up like a scroll. Well, verse 4 tells you, and perhaps you need to hear this little sentence this morning. Isaiah 34, verse 4 tells you that this universe is not eternal. The blue vault of the heavens. I see the sky every day of my life. The deep indigo of the nighttime sky with the shining stars. I see that almost every day of my life. That's not eternal. It's going to roll up. Our dryer quit working a little while ago, and a friend of ours who knows all about appliances, he came over and he fixed it, thankfully for a $1.85 part. But he told me that years ago, the same dryer that we have, it would have lasted a lot longer. But the manufacturers uh, decided to build obsolescence into the appliances so that we'd have to buy more and more and more and more. I, I, I'm not exactly sure, but I think as far as biblical theology goes, there's, there's a, there's, you know, pr there's an Edenic um, before our lapse into sin. But the, the consequences of the, of the fall into sin is that God builds this obsolescence into the world. And the sky, which is there anything that seems more permanent than the sky? Even the mountains, you could have a volcano, you could have an earthquake, but how, how are you going to get rid of the sky? He says the sky 
will be rolled back as a scroll. Now, he uses the word like, so we can say it's a comparison, but we can also say it's literally going to happen. He uses the word like because he's describing the indescribable, but it is literally going to happen. Listen to how Isaiah 6 puts it. I mean, I'm sorry, Revelation 6 puts it. The sixth seal. Revelation 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, saying, oh, please fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Perhaps you recognize Isaiah 34, verse 4 from our hymn, the, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. This will happen. The imagery of a rolled up scroll, I, I just, I'm fascinated by Isaiah's imagery. And I'm just telling you, uh, the day I finish preaching Isaiah, I feel like I could go back and start again and, and find so much more. His imagery is inexhaustible. But don't you think that the image of the scroll is at least doubly meaningful? The first is that the sky, which God initially rolled out, he'll just yank a corner of it and roll it back up. But don't you think that the scroll signifies the last word in the last paragraph, in the last line of the story that is written about this life in this temporary universe? That story ends. And there is hell. And there is heaven, and there is the lamb in his wrath, and the lamb in his glory in the world which is to come. The second scroll. Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 34 speak of the sacrifice, a sword that has blood in it. And then he uses the word sacrifice and even says the soil is, is, is filled up with the fat and the tissue and the blood of the sacrifice. There's a, uh, in, in biblical, the development of biblical theology, there is like an ironic uh, razor's edge in the Old Testament teaching about sacrifice. You see it in Nadab and Abihu when God initially reveals sacrifice in Leviticus. You see it dramatically in uh, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. The, the, the razor's edge of this thing that God's revealing in sacrifice is this. God is, it is as if God is saying, there is a way for you not to be the sacrifice, though that's what you deserve because of your sin. And God provides a blood sacrifice that can cover you. 
But we see even in the story of Nadab and Abihu, when they, uh, so to speak, despise God's sacrifice, they themselves become the sacrifice. Same with the prophets of Baal in that great story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And that's what I, the Hebrew imagery, at least, is referring to here. Which reminds us, which reminds us, at least part of the reason why we don't have to be embarrassed about the doctrine of hell is this. God has provided a sacrifice. And every person who then themselves will become a sacrifice, it is because they have despised the sacrifice that God provided at the cost of the blood of his own son. Not a lamb, not a bull, not a goat, the son of God. And so to despise what the son of God has done, what do you expect a holy God to do about that? Nothing. And so this imagery that can make us uncomfortable and that we can weep over, it also makes us tremble with fear and it makes us bold that God is good because he has provided a sacrifice. He uses the phrase, the day of the Lord, in verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Uh, Isaiah's first use of the day of the Lord, and sometimes in biblical prophecy and poetry, first use of a Hebrew term uh, holds great significance. I hope you love Isaiah's first use of the day of the Lord as much as I do. It is in Isaiah 2, verse 12, which says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Proud, abusive persons will no longer be tolerated in the world which God is yet to build. That's the day of the Lord, which is coming. The day of the Lord occurs in the prophets some 20 times. That phrase occurs four times in the New Testament. Uh, just to read you one of them is in Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Maybe this will sound familiar to you. It's a, very, it's a very famous prophetic text, 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10. 2 Peter 3, 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day, this is a thousand years, and a thousand years, this is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We mistakenly become embarrassed and treat the doctrine of hell like a, like a picture we're embarrassed about because for some reason we just grab this language of fire, this language of eternity and we're like, well, why is it like that? But even there in Second Peter, 
He says, he says God is longing that all should come to repentance. And that longing was not merely delivered by a letter that he sent, but he let the fire of heaven fall on, on, on the Son of God at Golgotha. That's our cross. That's our sacrifice. That's our salvation. And God longs that all would come. And yet they refuse. And so the day of the Lord will find them without a sacrifice. Back to Isaiah 34, verse 10. This is also imagery that is repeatedly picked up in the New Testament. The image of smoke. Uh, verse 8 says, The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, and the streams of Edom shall be turned to pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Verse 10, Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. And then in the subsequent verses, he, he lists the, the, Levitical, the, the Levitically unclean animals will like take over because it's a, it's, a, it's a curse and a wasteland. But the image in verse 10 is of the smoke that rises forever. This is picked up, th this is quoted by Jesus himself in the Gospels. And then it's, uh, it's actually seen in the apocalyptic vision of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11 say, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. One of the reasons that we're embarrassed by the doctrine of hell or that we struggle with it is this issue of the eternality of hell, this word forever. Some would prefer and have built whole uh, money-making systems on some doctrine of purgatory where you can get out. Some others would prefer a sort of doctrine of a destruction that means annihilation. But the language of the Old Testament and the language of Jesus Christ and the language of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Peter and Revelation insists that hell is a, an, a conscious, eternal, torment. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, his first thing out of, the, out of the gate, he says many and few. And he says broad is the way and many are headed to this destruction. Few find the narrow road. Jesus repeats this in Matthew 24 and 25, in John chapter 5, in Luke chapter 13, other places. The biblical doctrine of hell that all Christians have confessed for 2,000 years, uh, we try to find ways to weasel out of it because it seems strange to us or it seems like why would God punish sin that's committed in time with, a, with some kind of torment that's outside of time? It seems like overkill to us. It seems terrible to us with our modern sensibilities and our contemporary sensitivities. Church, 
let this not be the only time that you hear me say to you, your modern sensibilities and your contemporary sensitivities are not safe. They're not a good guide. This is a better guide. This is a better guide. So ask the Spirit of God to bring your emotional intelligence and to bring your affective uh, reactions to things. Ask him to bring it in line with what he has said. Our feelings and our sensibilities are hardly a safe guide. Why does it seem unfair to us? Why does it seem embarrassing to us? Can we we apply what we believe uh, to ourselves for just a second? Let me do a little theological, anthropological reasoning. The Bible says that we have fallen short of the glory of God in our sin. So if this is true, and it is, then the fact that hell seems embarrassing to us or the fact that hell seems disproportionate to us is actually one more manifestation of the reality that we my friends, have fallen short of the glory of God. It is certainly not a manifestation that we more clearly see justice and righteousness than God does. It is a manifestation that we, in our, in our sin of mind, of flesh, of spirit, of emotion, of heart, of guts, of everything, of our corruption, that we fall short of the glory of God. It's one more manifestation that in our sinful pride, you have a big view of your own self and your own thoughts and your own opinions and you have a small view of God and his glory. That may be a theological mouthful, but to say it in a sentence, the fact that eternal hell seems cruel or unfair to us is itself one more manifestation of the fact that we are sinners who have despised the glory of God and deserve hell. We distort things. We minimize things. And that's a result of our sin. It's certainly not a result of the fact that we have this thing architected better than God Almighty. If these are some of the images of judgment and punishment in Isaiah 34, I'd like to close with four kind of what difference does it make today? Understanding eternity and Lord willing, if we're all still here, I'll do the same thing next week with the doctrine of heaven. I'll ask the question, how does understanding heaven and its eternity uh, influence next Tuesday, like now? And we'll do the same with the doctrine of hell this morning. Number one, recalibrate values. Recalibrate values. By that I mean your priorities should be pushed around by the reality of hell and the reality of heaven. Your priorities should be pushed around. Your values should be recalibrated. Eternity reminds us of what is truly important in life. And I would expect you to rearrange your values if you meditated on hell a little more than you do. A believer who meditates on the reality of hell will invest herself or himself far far more in what matters most and far less in what matters least. Again, just to step back and and look at ourselves in the mirror. We are human beings created in the image of God. Animals aren't created in the image of God. 
So animals operate by instinct. We men and women are not meant to operate by instinct. We're meant to operate by value, by priorities in our mind, in our hearts. And so we, we place value on people, places, objects, concepts, commitments, and those cause us to do the things that we do and those cause us to refuse to do the things we don't do. And your values ought to be recalibrated by the reality of heaven and hell. I'm often asked, especially when I meet new people, when I'm, you know, just talking to people and they find out I'm a pastor, they're like, what, is, what do pastors do? And I love this answer, and I believe it. My job as a pastor is to, to prepare people to die. I mean that. My job as a pastor is to prepare people to die. Everybody thinks about how to live. Nobody thinks about how to die. My job as a pastor is to help people see the invisible. Everybody else in their life helps them see the visible. Nobody helps them see the invisible. That's my job. That's my job. I want you to see God, whom you cannot see. And I want you to see eternity, which matters so much more than the next 40 years of your life. But you don't live that way. And so you need to recalibrate your values. Number two, generate generosity generate generosity. The fact that God is coming to judge and the time is short generates generosity in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where our zeal for missions comes from. This is why, I don't know what the final number was, but this is why all the money we spent on that trip to Kenya last week was worth it. This is why we sponsor scholarships at Moffitt Bible College in the Rift Valley so that men and women and boys and girls all over the continent of Africa can be delivered from the wrath which is coming. This is why we give money every week to support the work of the James who are, if this is online, I should just say in Central Asia, translating the Bible in a place where having a Bible and having a church is illegal and dangerous, but we support them to get the word out so that people all over Central Asia can be delivered from the wrath which is coming. This is why we support medical missions in Nepal. This is why we support church planning in cabardino Bukhari. This is why we've, we've partnered for years with the churches and the gospel ministries in Honduras. This is why. And it ought to not only generate generosity with our money, but it ought to generate generosity with your mouth that you would share the good news of Jesus Christ because there is a sacrifice and an escape but people won't know unless they hear and it's up to you to share. When we don't share about Jesus, it, when you don't share about Jesus, it's because one, you don't love people enough to share with them or two, you don't actually love Jesus and believe in heaven and hell enough to talk about them but if you love people and you actually believe it, of course you'll share it. Paul preached about hell one time in, in, uh, he was talking to this guy named King Agrippa and Paul was in chains when he was talking to him. And Paul got wound up about being delivered from the wrath to come. And he actually says there in Acts 26, he's like, I, 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 I have been delivered from the wrath to come and I wish that you, King Agrippa, and everybody in this place, including the servants, could be delivered just like I am, except not have these chains, is what he says. You remember what he says in Romans 9? He says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart for my kinsmen, that they might be saved. This leads to a generous compassion. It doesn't at all lead to a closed heart. 
That's outward. Let me take one inward, which I don't know, may surprise you. Number three, release bitterness. Release bitterness. The doctrine of hell means that you can let things go because you are not the judge. The doctrine of hell means that you can release bitterness and let things go. That you can let it go. And if you bring up that song from Frozen, I will punch you in the throat. But it means that, I'm sorry. It means that, it means that, it means that there is a judge and you ain't him. This imagery of the book, imagery of the scroll, in, uh, it's in Revelation 20, verse 12. It says there, I'm paraphrasing, that it says that all, all who are great and all who are small, all kings and all servants will stand before the throne and the book will be opened. And it actually says in that text that written in the book are all of the deeds that they have done. Are you moving with me now on why you don't have to get back at everyone who has done you dirty? There is a record and you don't have to keep it. There is a record that is kept by an omniscient, omnipotent God. This means that you can let things go because God doesn't miss anything. No one's going to pull one over on God. You don't have to help God out by being mean to people who have been mean to you. He doesn't need that kind of help. You can forgive those who have mistreated you. You can let go of wrath and vengeance. Romans 12, verse 19, beloved, beloved, never. Wow, what a word for a pastor to use. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. The apostle Peter gives this advice. In First uh, Peter, he's, he speaks to all Christians and then he speaks, curiously, to slaves, in some cases what we would call employees. And then he speaks to, to wives who, whose husbands do not obey the word. And he says, follow the example of Jesus. When you are reviled, don't revile in return, but entrust yourself to the God who judges all things justly. There is a God who judges all things justly, so I don't have to retaliate. Recalibrate values, generate generosity, release bitterness, and fourth and finally, increase gratitude to God. Increase gratitude to God. When we consider hell, oh yeah, we weep with concern for our loved ones. We do. Jesus wept multiple times. We weep with concern for our loved ones. But when we consider that there is a way to escape hell, and God provided it by the sacrifice of his own son, that our hearts swell with gratitude that we have been given that way and that we have been commissioned to share that way with everyone around us. And to remember the gospel of God's grace, to remember the gospel of the sacrifice of God's son, can I just tell you this? You would have never good behavior yourself out of hell. 
This is why we confess and believe that we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose, whose life and death and resurrection is our only hope for salvation. So when we realize we can't, we could never have good behavior ourselves out of hell, all we have is gratitude for a Christian who believes in the gospel of God's grace to be proud of their salvation or to be cold about the judgment of others is a completely unchristlike way to be Christian. The reality of heaven and hell are intended by God to be a vivid demonstration of his glory. His glory in making a sacrifice that could deliver us from hell and his glory in judging those who despise that perfect sacrifice. And maybe that's the last thing I want you to close with is that the judgment of God is not a military or judicial or sort of theoretical squaring of the equation kind of act. The judgment of God is the personal activity of God receiving the glory that is due his name. That's why Isaiah 34 says that uh, the Lord is enraged, verse two. That's why Isaiah 34 says the Lord has a sword, verse six. And that's why Isaiah 34, verse eight says the Lord has a day. It is the very presence of God that's on display here. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying that we'd see God in the beauty of his glory. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, bless the preaching of your word. Open the eyes of our heart to you, your glory, your justice, and your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.